Hello, and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye, and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Abdi Ismail, a senior official of the International Committee of the Red Cross. Abdi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Emma. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Abdi, you were born in Somalia. Tell me what your childhood was like. Yes, uh, <laughs> I have a very good memories of, of, of those days, actually. So I, I think of it as, uh, as a, a bit of a privileged um, childhood, to be honest. And um, my parents were public servants. Uh, my um, father was, uh, was the mayor of the city where I was born. And my grandfather was uh, an officer in the army who had spent 11 years in, in the Soviet Union back in the days. And uh, when he came back to Somalia, he became the governor. Of, of the region where I was born. So, so yeah, I have a pretty much uh, a lot of good memories and a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of warm memories of the childhood that I had in this small town in, in the middle of Somalia, in the dusty corner of Somalia. And, uh, uh, and, and just uh, roaming around with my first bicycle uh, and, uh, you know, just uh, hitting around on people and <laughs> just running away. Uh, and then people complaining to my, to my parents and to my grandfather, yeah, so pretty good memories, yes. Good memories until? Correct, correct. Um, unfortunately, as, uh, as you know, the country plunged into a decades-long civil war that, uh, that, is, uh, that is it's still trying to recover, actually, as we speak uh, today. So it has been, uh, it has been quite uh, difficult for many of us uh, and for many people, including the older generation who left the country at the onset of the civil war and uh, with the hope of coming back to it at some point and thinking that this would be just a temporary um it'll be a tragic uh period of their of their lives and their country but then it turned out being uh permanently exiled abroad and permanently living abroad and uh, disconnected from the country and this was a little bit also my reality um just uh, when I was about eight, nine years old, um, the civil war broke out. And basically, uh, at the time, uh, uh, we had to flee. I was living with my father at the time and his family. And uh, I had to flee with, with them to a refugee camp in eastern Ethiopia, where we spent uh, months. And then eventually, uh, by a stroke of luck and uh, through a series of journeys, uh, my mom finally managed to... Uh, locate me in this refugee camp and then eventually took me back to where she was living at the time in uh, in Djibouti and then subsequently um, to, to, to Italy. But tell me a, a bit more about how your mother actually managed to find you because I can imagine sort of the mess of civil war. You've got no idea where anybody is. So how did she manage to locate you? Yes, I think this was a little bit of a miracle. Um, but what, what I've also learned uh, by meeting many other people that actually uh, this story is not, um, you know, it's not a story that, uh, um, that is unique to, to people who have gone through these type of situations and that you hear all sorts of crises and all sorts of journeys, both uh, um, physical and, uh, and emotional, uh, that people go through to, to in these type of situations. So in the case of my mom, um, at the time she was uh, in Djibouti and she had just given birth to my younger sister. 
and uh, she then decided well um she didn't know what had happened to me because uh, when uh, she was in Djibouti and uh, giving birth to my sister, I was with my father. And um, at the time, there were no contacts and no telephones and all these things, or mobile phones, rather. So there was very little interaction that we would have in those, uh, in those months we were apart. And then the civil war breaks out. I moved from the city where I was living in Somalia with my father to a refugee camp in Eastern Ethiopia. And of course, no way of, of uh, informing my mom uh, um, of our whereabouts. So after she gave birth to my sister, actually she goes around for a period of two weeks uh, from Djibouti into Somaliland and then into Puntland and all the different um, uh, regions of Somalia um, where the civil war was actually um, still going on and uh, where, um, especially in the early days of the conflict, uh, there were really massive and uh, quite brutal civil war that was also uh, affecting the civilians in a very um, deliberate manner uh, by, by because they were being targeted for being the wrong clan or for having an association with, uh, with individuals who um, had committed crimes in, uh, in, in, during the previous regime. So um, after two weeks of, of moving around by lack of stroke uh, um, and through um, getting information from different uh, members of the community and uh, by a uh, stroke of chance, she bumped into people that she knew who had information about uh, uh, the family of my father and then uh, finally managed to go um, to this refugee camp, which at the time was holding, I think, uh, roughly around 500,000 uh, refugees from Somalia. So you can imagine, even when you locate the refugee camp, and then to locate the specific yeah, like the tent and the specific, exactly. And, yeah. uh, and it happened in a, in a very weird way. Um, when I spoke with my mother uh, about um, about these uh, these moments, the way I remember the encounter with my mother is completely different from actually the way it had happened in reality. So in my mind, I was actually the one who saw her and ran into her and uh, and, and, uh, and physically, you know, um, hugged her. Whereas the reality, as it would happen, is that I was almost getting blind because obviously you can imagine the hygiene conditions in a refugee camp with so crowded and uh, with very little um, medical attention. So I was having some infections at my eyes and I was uh, and the infection was so bad, actually, that I was in, inside the tent and sleeping, just spending time in the tent because I couldn't literally see uh, and couldn't go outside. So some of my siblings who were playing a football late one afternoon, uh, around 5 p.m., um, that one of them actually had recognized my mom and uh, the lady that uh, she was traveling with. And, uh, and finally, she had brought, um, he had brought her to, to the tent where I was staying. And that's how, basically, she, she managed to find uh, me. It's an amazing story. Now, your mom's second husband was Italian. And so you moved with them to Italy. What was that experience like? You're coming out of a refugee camp, but now you're living in Italy. How did you adjust to that? Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it was, um, I think a lot of people, um, you know, I, I, I tend to agree and I tend to recognize the importance that many people have had in my life. And, and the opportunities that I have been given in life, you know, I think fundamentally go back to two chance events, no? Uh, that of, uh, of course, uh, of this refugee camp encounter, re-encounter, my mom finding me again, and the other, the other um, 
episode is exactly my mom's uh, chance encounter with this other man who was a doctor who was working in Somalia and they were married with him. And, and how then eventually my life and everybody else involved in the family's life really changed um, in, in, in for the positive. So um, after the refugee camp, um, we spent, I think, about two years, a year and a half in Djibouti. And then subsequently, when uh, my stepfather's job uh, mission ends in Djibouti, he gets transferred back to Milan and to Italy. And uh, as, as a teenager in Italy, I remember um, I really have quite... Again, very, very good memories. I think the reality in Italy at the time was very different from what it is now. And in fact, the reality in general in Europe um, probably was very different from what it is today. And, uh, and I remember that, um, you know, we moved into a city and a, and a neighborhood, uh, into a city where I think it was only our family and another family that had, um, you know, people of color. In it. Everybody else was, uh, was Italian and, you know, everybody else was, was white. So there was very little diversity but because there was very little diversity anybody who was different from the the mainstream italian society was was looked in a, in a kind of like very curious way and a positively curious way so i remember um thinking about it now sounds a little bit weird but i remember you know people coming to me trying to figure out exactly who i was and uh, you know asking me questions and wanting to know and wanting um, to learn more about uh, who i was on what I, uh, what I had gone through in, in my life. So that was quite interesting. But then obviously the, the trajectory of, of, uh, of, um, of, uh, of many of these European countries and particularly in Italy has, has shifted dramatically. Um, and, and that can be due to many, many reasons uh, from you know, um, migration, from you know, the, the decline in, in, in the economy of many of these European countries. And, and today, really, um, from that kind of like benevolent and, and um, welcoming and curiosity that existed back in those years in the 90s now has shifted to a very vicious uh, xenophobic and uh, um, almost racist mindset that, uh, uh, that uh, pervades the majority of the people that you attract with. So it's, it is a bit of a pity to have lived through these two different faces and has and seen um, uh, I guess one would hope to see the progress, but here I think mostly the regression of, of, of certain attitudes of the society towards people of different color and different uh, backgrounds. Did you, you know, coming there as a, a teenager, did you feel that you were, you did become an Italian? Do you speak fluent Italian? Hmm. Yes, good question. Yes, I do. I do speak uh, fluent Italian and, uh, and unfortunately also with the, with the, slightly awful northern uh, accent which which is frowned upon by many people when when they they, they hear me uh, but in terms of the question of identity I think um, I found it always difficult to to really um, get to the bottom of that and and, and I never really fully considered myself uh, Italian um, although growing up as a, as a teenager when you almost like start forming your identity as an individual and, uh, and, and, and start becoming attached to, uh, to certain things in terms of friends, in terms of the culture, in terms of you know, the way of life. And, and, you know, you start creating your values. I think I started leaning towards the Italian um, aspect of my identity much more than the Somali one. However, um, growing up, I think one thing that I've always been fortunate was how my mom 
um, has always been keen on making sure that I also maintain my, my Somali identity and, and Muslim identity, particularly, which uh, um, which was, uh, you know, we were not a practicing family at the time and it was very liberal, but at the same time, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was useful. And I think in, I, as I look back now, I find it extremely useful not to have lost also that, that, that aspect of, of, of uh, my identity. And then when I started working in the humanitarian field and when I finally managed to go back to Somalia, then that is really um, back in 2006. That is uh, when I went back to Somalia for the first time, actually, since I left the country. Um, that experience and that encounter again with the Somali culture and society actually rekindled my identity with, with Somalia and, and, and started developing much more empathy with that side of, of who I am. So today, frankly speaking, I, I, I kind of feel that I have the, the, the luxury and the opportunity of, of cherry picking what I like of both and, and kind of like dropping on the side and pretending uh, when I hear things that I don't like about either one of them, just uh, highlighting the opposite uh, uh, identity rather than the one <laughs> that's been uh, mentioned at that time. So for the last 12 years, you've been working for the International Committee of the Red Cross. And prior to becoming a World Fellow, you were the head of mission for the ICRC in Yemen, in Aden, which is home to one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world. What was it like to be managing such a large-scale humanitarian operation in such difficult circumstances? Yes, Emma. I think the crisis in Yemen is incredibly um, a challenging one. And um, I have been to Yemen twice. The first time I was uh, working at the far end, at the northern tip of the country, um, near the border with Saudi Arabia, and the second time in, in Aden, at the deep south, at exactly the opposite end of the country. And, um, and that gave me the opportunity to really see both sides of, of, of the conflict and, and how each side is, is struggling and how population and the civilians on both sides of the, of the, of the, of the conflict divide is really um, um, finding itself in a, in a very difficult situation. Um, it, it's difficult for me to be neutral in a way about the situation in Yemen because I, I have grown to really love the culture, the society, and, and the people of the country. And um, and as you know, Somalia is very close, both physically and uh, uh, both geographically and, and culturally to, to, to Yemen. So I really felt at home uh, on both occasions when I, when I was in uh, Yemen. And it was really, really difficult to to have that level of, of um, um, you know, affinity with the culture, and yet... Um, you know, to see the way people were struggling and, and suffering uh, from from the lack of services, lack of electricity, lack of uh, um, education system, and lack of uh, you know um, appropriate health facility for for the mothers and children and and, and and the wounded, but also how you know people were divided between you know between families and, and they couldn't really. Uh, spend time with their families because on one side of the family was in the north and the other side of the family is in the south and all the different violations and and the um, you know the arrest and detention uh, often arbitrary and often without uh, judicial guarantees of many of the people um, on both sides of the conflict so so it's it's a it's a tremendous uh, challenge for for anyone really to understand the conflict in Yemen but even more so to try to untangle so many different layers 
that have unfortunately become so enmeshed that um, that probably it's going to be very difficult for any one party or any one uh, actor to really uh, find a, a durable solution to, to this conflict. While you're a former refugee who now helps other refugees, what's your hope for humanity? <laughs> yes, uh, my hope for humanity. Um, I think, I think it's um, it's it's a difficult uh, it's difficult to see today. Um, you know what what hope can exist for humanity. Um, you know, I was recently uh, rereading an article that was uh, written on uh, on the um, on the on the clock. Uh, I forgot its name. It's a doomsday clock that tries to. Uh, capture how close are we as a society, as human beings, uh, to to coming to the end of our existence. So, um, looking at some of those things uh, between uh, you know, the pandemic and, and the challenges in terms of uh, aggression of democracy and populism, and uh, you know the 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 climate change uh, um, problems and how that is impacting on the lives of people, and you know you name it, the amount of challenges that exist today just make you. A little bit um, wonder if there is any hope for 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 our for our society for human beings for our uh, race. But to be honest with you, I, despite all of these challenges, I really believe that in our core, um, human beings are fundamentally good. So my hope for humanity would be that um, that goodness will really enlighten us um, and shine. Um, strong light on our common destiny as as humans, and that ultimately this will lead um, to a more equitable, more prosperous, more peaceful world where you know human beings and uh, you know people live in symbiosis with uh, with our planet. So this is a little bit uh, my hope for humanity, despite uh, the many actions of uh, of uh, well the lack of many. Well, despite the fact that uh, there are a lot of challenges uh, to tackle. Well, Abdi, thank you very much. Thank you, Emma, for having me.